This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Then, we'll close the week Friday with a message from Alistair titled, Revival Soul. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Now, here's Alistair Begg on Today in the Word radio. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming back again. First Peter chapter 5, and we're looking this morning at one verse. It's the seventh verse, which in the New International Version reads, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Yesterday morning, we dealt with a characteristic which most of us, if we're honest, sense the need to find increasingly displayed in our lives— namely, the whole dimension of humility. This morning, we turn to something that many of us need to find progressively removed from our lives, namely, the whole issue of anxiety. And I asked you yesterday morning how many of you were humble, and one guy jokingly suggested he might be, and most of us could identify with the need for humility. Some of us perhaps are blessed with the ability to go through life with a form of total abandon, and nothing seems to phase us or stress us at all. Others of us, however, know what it is to face stress, to face anxiety, and we all respond to it in all kinds of different ways, and our, and our bodies and our constitutions respond to it in different ways. But if you know what it is to be anxious, then 1 Peter 5, 7 speaks to you. I'd like to trace a line through our study this morning by noticing, first of all, the, uh, the nature of anxiety itself, and then the action that is to be taken, and then the assurance that we are promised here when we take the action to which we're directed. We don't have time this morning to set First Peter 5 in its historic context, but many of you will know that when Peter was writing— those who were the recipients of his letter were not living in the rarefied circumstances which most of us have enjoyed for most of our lives, namely freedom and the opportunity of service. Rather, these people were confronted by the threat of persecution 
and they were virtually devoid of any security in terms of the national superstructure which existed around them. And so, consequently, the issue of anxiety was not something that was theoretical to them, but largely it was intensely practical. Christians were regarded as antisocial. They were regarded as a total nuisance. And they were living their lives at this juncture uh, with a menacing thought that at any time violence may break out upon them in the way that a volcano may erupt. And in the midst of that, since the heart of man has not changed, Christians were going through their days, and doubtless they worried about the same kinds of things that Christians worry about today. They worried about their lives. They worried about their families. They worried about their future. They worried about their employment or lack of it. Engaged couples worried that they might never, ever get married. And businessmen worried that they might reach the end of the year and never make a profit. And so, although 20 centuries have elapsed, we discover that there is a contemporary ring to the issue, because since man has not changed, the issues he confronts have not left him behind either. And so, this morning, it's true that we do know anxiety. Some of us worry about being in crowds, and we don't like it. Others of us worry that we might live life lonely. Some of us worry about the effects of success. Some of us worry about the fact that we've never had the opportunity of worrying about the effects of success. Some of us worry about change. It's always changing on us. Some of us worry about the deadness of a dull routine. Some of us are afraid of the dark. Some of us are afraid of heights. Some of us are claustrophobic. And sometimes anxiety can reach absolutely epidemic proportions, whereby it could virtually close you down as an individual. In the stage play, In Search of Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, which uh, Lily Tomlin took as a one-woman show, which I have not seen, uh, but I have read the stage play, at least those parts of it which qualify for the scrutiny of Philippians 4.8. And believe me, it's not all of it. But in the opening section of that stage play, she talks about how she worries about a lot of things. And she says, I worry that if olive oil comes from olives, and if peanut oil comes from peanuts, where does baby oil come from? <laughs> she said, I worry. I worry about my place in the cosmic scheme of things. I worry that there is no cosmic scheme of things. And at this point, of course, she is Trudy. She's the bag lady. And so the tremendous juxtaposition of thought hits the audience as they see this bag lady standing at the corner of walk, don't walk, and expressing these phenomenal metaphysical truths. Sartre saw anxiety in terms of man's concern about his past and about his parents. Marx saw anxiety in terms of man's concerns about his neighbors and his uh, future. And Kierkegaard saw anxiety in terms of man's concerns about eternity and about God. So that the pages of social and philosophical and political history concur with what the Bible says, namely that fear is not an emotion which is unknown to us. Anxiety is something that we face. And there will be some who are in seats this morning in this room, and you are not at the moment coping with today. 
because you are so tyrannized by what happened yesterday, and you are so consumed with what is about to happen tomorrow, that you're finding it almost impossible to live the 24 hours that are given you in the present. And despite the fact that you've begun to tell yourself that the future comes in at the rate of 60 seconds a minute, therefore don't get anxious, something inside of you demands a different response. The extent, then, of anxiety is multifaceted. The essence of anxiety is found in the word which is used here in Greek, and it is a word which means to divide or to distract or to disorient, disorientate. It is a word that speaks to instability. It's a word that speaks to uncertainty, all the things that further expand the potential for fear. Now, we could go on and on at this. It's profitless because each of us, to some degree or another, recognizes, yes, okay, we've got the point, beg, thank you very much, anxiety, we have it. All right? You've got it. The real question is, how do you deal with it? Now, lest any of us feel ourselves to be at total arm's length from this, I, I'll just share my own heart with you, okay? I'll let you know. Last Sunday night, last Thursday night, Last Friday night, it was. It's going through the computer. Da, 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 da. Okay? And a very slow response, computer. Last Friday night, I had pizza, my favorite place. Pizza. Gorgeous. Ate large quantities of it, always trying to beat out my son, who, at the age of almost 13, can eat enough pizza for the whole family and keep going. But as I ate the pizza, I enjoyed it as usual, went to bed, with uh, two large slugs out of the Maalox bottle, okay? Never mind the spoons. This is heavy-duty time. <laughs> just, just drink it down. Clean, clean the crusty top off, which is always there. It's gross. Get that, get that garbage off the top. Close your eyes and just drink. So I slugged it down and laid in my bed. Woke up halfway through the night saying, I'll never eat pizza again. Now, without going into a long diatribe, since then, which is last Friday, I've had some kind of knot right here at my sternum, okay? I can blow it out. I can burp it out. I can mailox it out. I can't get it out at all. In my study on Monday night preparing to come here, it was so sore that I was lying on my back on the floor reading my notes saying, Dear God, please help me to get to Moody Bible Institute, okay? Now you say, why am I telling you all this? Because this morning, as I prepared, as I woke up to the new day, to address the students of Moody Bible Institute about the nature of anxiety, I woke up saying, I'm worried sick about whatever this thing is. What is this? Why won't it go away? And it won't go away. So I was anxious. So what did I do? Well, I read my message. Well, so what? Do you think reading it makes it go away? No, because you could be a preacher of the Word and not a doer also, right? Do you think we would hear the Word, and because we heard it, it changed everything? No. James says, no, you can hear it. You can hear it so much that it's like spaghetti noodles coming out your ears. You can have it all memorized. It's all be hanging off you, and yet you're no different. And you can preach it till you're blue in the face and still not live it. 
So unless you think that I am now to about to tell you, as yesterday, because such a humble man came to tell you all about humility, and then this morning this guy who knows nothing of anxiety is going to tell you all about dealing with anxiety, let's look at the Bible and find out what in the world we're supposed to do. All of us. What is the action we are to take? Well, notice what we're not to do. First of all, there is no indication either here or in the whole Bible that the way you respond to anxiety or to fear is to deny it. There is nowhere we're encouraged to ignore it. There is nowhere that we're exhorted to run from it. The distracting tactics of parents with their children, the kids jammed their fingers in the back door of the car, and they said, don't worry, I'll buy you a balloon. And the children says, what the world? Who needs a balloon? My finger is hanging off at the first junction. <laughs> no, isn't this a lovely balloon? I said, no, it stinks. Look at this. <laughs> so now let's get into this nonsense about, well, we'll just, we'll just balloon it away, you know. It doesn't work. There are, you can't get enough helium to balloon this away when it grips you in your heart. So there is a graphic word which is used, and the word may be variously translated, hand it over to, or place upon, or throw it on, or in a more old-fashioned word, hurl it. This is H-U- H-U-R-R-R-R-R-L, okay? Hurl, okay? <laughs> you folks can't say hurl. You can only say hurl, hurl. It's like, uh, I'm sorry that you just don't have that part in your, there in your soft palate, but that's okay. The word is hurl, okay? It means get it as far from you as you possibly can. But not just anywhere, somewhere. We'll come to that in a moment. A few weeks ago, I was driving the car with my son, and he said to me, do you know a great job, Dad? I said, no. He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, a great job is a G-thrower. So I didn't know what in the world he was talking about. I said, yeah, well, tell me about it. He said, well, you get up early in the morning, you get to ride on the back of a truck, and you throw garbage all over the place, and the faster you do it, the sooner you can go home. And what he was describing was a garbage man. And he decided this was a pretty good job, which gives you an indication of the future for my son, you know. And, uh, you know, forget Moody Bible Institute. He's just going to go straight at it. But uh, I thought about it. I said, you know, that's interesting, a garbage thrower. Because I've noticed those fellows. They do throw things, don't they? I mean, I don't know how they are in your neighborhood, but they don't come up to uh, our messy department and all get out in a line and then start picking up the bins together and then gingerly carrying them over and tipping them out gently <laughs> in the way that you might move a nice piece of furniture around or carry in a few porcelain pieces. No, they just, they come, they grab that thing, and they throw it right in the back, and they grab the second one, and it goes, and if they drop a piece, it goes, and it's gone. And they just hurl that stuff into the truck, and they're on their way. Their action is decisive, and it is energetic. Now, that is exactly the word which is used here to describe what we are to do with this dimension of anxiety when it grips us. We are to be decisive and energetic in dealing with it, and we are to chuck it. But we are not to chuck it into space. We are to chuck it directly 
upon him, casting your anxiety on him. Now, you will notice that I used a participle there rather than the imperative. It is an imperative in the NIV, and it is a participle in the King James Version, and the participle is far better than the imperative. Because the participle reminds us that we can't disengage verse 7 from verse 6. Let me explain to you what I mean. This verse 7 stands on its own when it begins with an imperative. It can't stand on its own when it begins with a participle. Humble yourselves, verse 6, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety on him. Now take out the parenthetical statement, if you like, which begins with a comma before under. And it reads like this, Humble yourselves, therefore, casting all your anxiety on him. And suddenly the lights go on. Suddenly it becomes apparent that there is a direct correlation between humility and dealing with anxiety. Suddenly we realize that when we begin to become self-focused, involved in self-pity, rearranging our future on the basis of our present tense fears, what we're actually doing is we are taking the whole agenda of our lives into our department, and we're beginning to assume that we know better than our Heavenly Father knows. And so we need to go back to the fundamental premise that Father knows best. So when we're overwhelmed with anxiety, it's clear that we are concerned by very important things. But the problem is that so often we're concerned with ourselves. You read in Luke chapter 10 the story of Martha and Mary and how Martha's really freaked out and she's down on her sister. Lord, get my sister to help me here. Can you see the mess I'm in? I'm so concerned about all of this, Lord Jesus. Jesus said, hey, Martha, Martha. You just almost hear his voice. Hey, Cool it. Let's get things back in perspective here, Martha. You're actually worried about things that you don't even need to be worried about. You're taking into your camp a whole ton of stuff that I never gave to you. And isn't that so often the way of it? One of my friends from a distance, professor in the Free Church College in Scotland, a man by the name of Douglas McMillan, went to heaven a few weeks ago. He was out walking on a Sunday afternoon, age 56, and had dropped down, and they found his shell, and he was gone to the presence of the Lord. And when he moved to uh, Glasgow some years ago, he told this great story of how when he moved into the manse where he was staying, his study was upstairs. It was on the, the uh, first floor or the second floor, as, as you would say. And so he had to transport all of his books, and he had tons of books, and get them up into his library. He had a wee boy who was about age four, and his boy said he wanted to help his dad get the stuff up the stairs. So the dad was going up with the various commentary series. He was a big, big man, Douglas McMillan. He'd been a wrestler in the Highland Games in Scotland, uh, up in the Western Isles. And uh, he was carrying all these big books up the stairs, and his wee boy wanted to help. So he gave his little boy a few magazines, a couple of sheets of paper tied with a bit of string, and he said, there you are. You bring them up the stairs. And as he was making his way back down the stairs on one of the journeys, before he came to the landing, he heard his son crying. 
And when he got to the landing, he found that his boy was there, and he was struggling with a huge, big concordance. And Douglas McMillan says, I looked at my son, and I never gave him the concordance. But he decided he wanted to struggle with it. But he said, instead of rebuking him and saying, you silly boy, why did you take that big problem for yourself? He said, I looked at my son, and I picked up my son, and I picked up his burden, and I carried them both to their destination. Now, what it comes down to this morning is this kind of issue. Do you believe and trust in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to meet us on the landing places of our lives and not chide us for some of the foolish predicaments into which we've got ourselves, but rather is able to pick up his son, to pick up his daughter, and to pick up their burden too? Now, the answer to that has got to be amen, because otherwise, how would any of us ever have made it to this point in our lives if we did not believe in a God who picked up his children and picked up their burdens? So when I embrace anxiety and begin to chew it and play with it and enjoy it and work it through, what I'm really saying is, I've got a better angle on this than my heavenly Father. In Scotland years ago, and probably in America here, they used to sing this uh, funny little chorus that began, Said the Robin to the Sparrow. You know this chorus? Said the Robin to the Sparrow, I should really like to know why those anxious human beings they rush around and they worry, worry so. And said the sparrow to the robin, Oh, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly Father such as cares for you and me. Now, wasn't that the perspective of Jesus? He says to his disciples, Which of you could become tall enough to play in the NBA by simply worrying? Well, he didn't actually say that. That's my paraphrase. Which of you can add a single hour to his life or an inch to his stature by worrying. Nobody can. He said, well, look at the grass. Does it worry? No. Look how green it is. Look at the birds. Do they worry? Do they store away? No. Who looks after them? Heavenly Father. Then he said, well, how much more will your Heavenly Father take care of you, O ye of little faith? Now, the registering of that truth must then produce action in our lives if the truth is to transform. It can give us a cozy feeling for a moment, but it will only transform when we take action on the strength of it. And that is that we can cast, then, our anxiety on Him. Indeed, I think I'd be prepared to lay it down as a maxim that the presence of anxiety is directly related to the absence of humility. We need to think it out, I think, but it would be worth thinking out that the presence of anxiety is directly related to the absence of humility. How are you when you fly, for example? Do you fly well? You go down there into 25J on a DC-10, and you know they're about to give you the usual line, welcome to the friendly skies, sit back and relax, and enjoy the flight. That's the, the sales pitch, and the music plays, but you're down there in 25J, and if it had a steering wheel right on the back of 24J, you'd be using it. If it had a throttle, if they had a whole panel for you, if they could transform the cockpit into row 25, you'd be thrilled, some of you, because now you're already looking to see if the flaps have come down. And the flaps haven't come down. They're just the way they were when you looked at the plane when you arrived an hour before departure. 
And you know enough to know that when a DC-10 is fully loaded, there's no way in the world that thing's coming off the ground unless those things extend beyond the level where they are now. So you're in 25J, willing the flaps out, willing them down, and it begins to taxi back, and they still haven't come down. And you're saying to yourself, I'm going to have to go up there and tell this guy to get the flaps down. You say, how do you know so much about it? Because I fly the plane from 25J. That's just what I do. And when that nose, after it, when it comes up and the nose does like that, you want it to do that. And when it feels like it's about, it's just stopped, you want to be able to look out the window because the feeling of it stopping was because he brought all those flaps back up again, you see, and it gave that sensation. If it has that feeling without those flaps coming back up, gets real tense in 25J. What's the problem? The problem is you're trying to be the pilot. You're not the pilot. I'm not the pilot. Thankfully. Children's Sunday school time again. Do you want a pilot? Signal then to Jesus. Do you want a pilot? Bid him come on board. For he can safely guide—this is ship technology now—across the ocean wide until at last we reach the heavenly harbor. And some of us are tyrannized by anxiety because we're endeavoring to fly, as it were, or cruise the ship of our lives with us at the tiller rather than recognizing that God is there. If you think about this on a far more societal level, think about the neurosis of our day. Think about the men and women who are held to the top by 86-proof anesthetic crutches. Think of the wards in our psychiatric hospitals full of aimless souls. And then think at the same time of a society which has rejected God. And so it has removed the possibility for the very foundational elements that bring stability through life. So there is no stability. There's no future. There's no hope. And suddenly, Joan Baez from the 60s is crying out the uh, phrase of our generation, we are the orphans in an age of no tomorrows. And so anxiety gives way to futility and to nihilism. Now, the issue, young people, is this, that as Christians, we are called upon to challenge those kind of premises in our day. We're to challenge the assertions, not with false cries of bravado, but in the example that is given to us here of humbling ourselves before God and giving over to Him the concerns and anxieties of our lives. Now, notice something very carefully. We may not be able to remove the cause of our anxiety. If the cause of your anxiety this morning is unemployment, you might not be able to move that by yourself, at least right now. If it is singleness, you may not be able to take care of that in the next 24 hours. If it is loneliness, the same. If it is recurring illness, the same. So we can't deal with the illness. We can't deal with the loneliness. We can't deal with the unemployment. But that's not the issue. The issue is that we're given a way to deal with the anxiety which comes as a result of those subterranean factors. Cast it, he says on the Lord. Don't let it weigh you down. Don't let it disturb your peace. Don't let it distract your minds. Why? And with this we conclude, and this is the kicker to the whole thing, because he cares for you. Some of you need to go back up to your room and get your shaving mirror. I'm talking to the boys now, the men, 
and just write those four words right across your mirror. He cares for you. He knows you better than you know yourself. In fact, Philip paraphrases it, you can throw the whole weight of your anxiety upon him, for you are his personal concern. It's a great paraphrase. This morning, if there wasn't another person in one of these green seats, you are his personal concern. In fact, in the Greek, it is very strong. Auto meli peri human. To him, it is a care concerning you. To him, a care concerning you. To throw our cares upon God is not to misplace our confidence. Rather, it is to bring all that ruffles us and buffets us and to lay it before him. This, you see, is a distinctive factor of Christianity. It was distinctive in the days of Baal. Remember the prophets of Baal? Running around, slashing themselves, trying to make the thing burn. Taunted by Elijah. Hey, are your gods sleeping? Try and wake them up. Maybe they went to the bathroom. Just keep going a little longer. And then God comes and descends and reveals his glory. In the day in which Peter was writing, folks were in the same predicament. They were trying to make their slumbering gods hear them. And Peter says, here's the distinction that Christianity brings. We have a God who cares for us. The God of the Christian is the only God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Mother Nature. A God who is plural, the triune God. A God who is powerful. A God who is perfect and a God who is praiseworthy. And that is the God this morning that cares for you. Can I ask you, what about your burdens and your cares this morning? I mean, real honest stuff. Some of you maybe lost a loved one and you have left your dad at home and your mom has died. Some of you have got real concerns about a brother or a sister and you find that every time the computer screen goes blank, it just immediately fills again with that same issue. And God has made you a sensitive soul, and that's why you're concerned. But you've got to recognize that he never gave you broad enough shoulders to deal with that whole thing, right? As you walk around the campus today, as you have a moment or two on your own, let me suggest to you that it might be a nice time for all of us to deal with some of the anxieties that can rob us of joy and rob us of usefulness. Let us pray together. The book of Hebrews reminds us that we don't have a high priest who is untouched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. We want to remind ourselves this morning of the, the lovely hymn, Standing Somewhere in the Shadows You'll Find Jesus. He's the only one who cares and understands. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you will find him, and you'll know him by the nail prints in his hands. Father, grant that we may bring our concerns our fears, 
to the very foot of your great and mighty throne, concerns about our ability to complete our classes, to make it to the end of term, to be what you want us to be, concerns that are often created because we're so busy comparing ourselves to one another rather than resting in your great and wonderful provision for us. Grant that all of our anxiety and all of our care we might bring to the mercy seat and leave it there, that we might remind ourselves that there's never a burden he cannot bear, and there's never a friend like Jesus. Hear our prayers, O God, this day, and let our cry come unto you. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.